Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. I just learned something else about The Bachelor the other night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. My my roommates are watching it a little later tonight. Uh, we'll be watching the finale, Ooh. which I guess will be old news by the time people hear this. But <laughs> I did not know that. I I knew, like, just, you know, I know about The Bachelor just from, you know, existing right and and you hear about it from people sure yeah i didn't know there was literally an episode specifically where he gets to have sex with all of them and then chooses wait what yeah when he gets down to three contestants basically they all have (laughs) over the course of three days he goes on dates with all of them they all sleep together and uh, then he chooses two of them to be in the finale. Uh, what? Yeah, that. Yeah. I, I really thought this was a show that was just like you know they maybe they went on a date to like get to know each yeah, other. And yeah, like, like talked about because everything's like weird. Everything's weirdly chased. You get the feeling that like there's kind of like a uh-huh. weirdly conservative undercurrent to all of this. You yeah. Know? Especially like I know not too long ago there was a big deal about like one of the one of the bachelors or bachelorettes was, you know, saving themselves for marriage or whatever. Uh-huh. Um so I had always kind of just assumed that the show like either danced around the fact that the contestants were possibly sleeping with each other, like right. or like like it's like the Olympic Village, you know, like we Sure. We hear about it every now and then that all of those Olympians are just going at each other all right. the time. Right, like, right. But that's not like a part of the Olympics. No, it's not an event, you know. Yeah, thankfully not. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, gross. Yeah, but okay, here's here's the thing, though, that I am very, uh, I'm just wondering about. Yeah. It, in a world where that is a part of the TV show, why, why, what, what was so bad about Chris Harrison? Like, hmm. I, I get, I get that he said. I, I'm not even entirely aware. I just know he like said something racist, and now he's canceled, and now he's not on the show anymore. And I think he's like, he's, I think he's always been the host of that show, and I think that's sure. kind of all he's famous for. I personally found him hilarious on that show because he always looks like well, he does not want to be there. <laughs> you know, oh, God. I thought you were going to lead with like, I just genuinely, I think he's a good guy. And I was like, wait, where is this going? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Oh, no, I find him hilarious. He just always looks like he's like, okay, get on with this. Like, I got somewhere else to be. It's like, Chris Harrison, what else are you doing? That's the other thing is that everybody refers to him by both his first and last name. Chris all the time oh, and i can't 
once I noticed it, I could not unhear it. It's like, oh, hi, Chris Harrison. Oh, wow. Chris Harrison left us a note. Isn't Chris Harrison great? Oh, oh wow. It's Chris Harrison. And it's it's such a weird thing. It's like, does he have that in his contract? It's like all of these fucking people have to refer yes. to me by my my full name. Absolutely. He's one of those. But in a world like in a in a in a world where this show is so weird and backwards and sexist and probably and probably other bad things if we investigated it further probably I'm sure it's the weird veneer of trying to be woke that they oust him for that hmm. not not that that's not a bad thing and that you should not be punished for you know being uh be, being a shitty person like right i'm not saying that it's just do you get what i'm saying isn't it yeah. kind of weird isn't it kind of weird that that's the thing that they caught up on before yeah. the entire show yeah isn't that weird isn't I that, think isn't, that that's... Am, am i am i crazy like it's like if people were like it's like when people say like uh miss america pageant like does this uh, thing and needs to be more inclusive or whatever and it's like why yeah, yeah. the hell I do think, we still have the yeah that's still objectifying people <laughs> i still think that that's a we're not really hitting the big problem here boys this is a bit uh yeah surface it's level. like it's such a it is such a weird it's such a weird thing to pick out yeah in other in something else that i think most people acknowledge is like yeah this show's pretty fucked up but we love watching it uh not great no hate to the bachelor but all the hate to the bachelors how i say it i don't mm -hmm. understand i'm sorry i, I st yeah. i'm still a little caught up on the fact that they were all kind of just sleeping with each other that's a bit well you know let people live i guess i guess if it wasn't part of the con yeah that that's the thing weird. that's a little strange to me is like there's something yeah. to gain out of this that feels a bit unethical yeah. but anyway Ugh. <laughs> yeah well Th that's just what I think's been on my mind uh, yeah. this past week, along with many other things that I'm sure, sure we'll get into. Well, mm. uh, are are you ready to head into uh, the exhibition hall? We are here at the UCM, ready for the second uh, the second week of our exhibition on 20th century art. We somehow uh, made it through the first few decades. Are you ready to see what happens next? Oh, I know I am. I'm oh, yeah, excited. I'm sure everyone. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, everybody was so excited, you know, beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. What wonders await us? We have so many amazing technological advances mm -hmm. and philosophies and all this cool stuff. You ready to head inside? I think we should do it. Let's go for it. All right, let's go in and... Uh, oh. Uh... Whoops. Hey, did Zan? Did we Oh. Oh, did did you notice something? Yeah, uh, the entire exhibit <laughs> has been blown up. Joe, Joe, it's a metaphor. No, because... it's not. It just happened. I watched it happen in front of me. What do you mean it's a metaphor? <laughs> well, I thought what better way to talk about uh, the uh, the post-war years of the 20th century then just blow up everything that preceded it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess, but we all, you know, we don't own these objects. Uh, um, hmm. I didn't think that part yeah. through, but also it was all 
you know, is isn't the point? Of, it wasn't the point of all of these uh, these artists to you know destroy the idea of originality and you know the original <sighs> art object is not as important as the idea of it. Yeah. God damn mm-hmm, it, Sam. Mm-hmm. That's a good move. Just you... write that in a nice letter and yeah. send that to all of the other institutions that Fine. we borrowed stuff from. I'll say it's a part of our action piece here and it'll it'll be enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you know what's funny? It does remind me of the one artist who went into the German pavilion in um in Venice in the in the Biennale that happens every two years, and as the piece mm-hmm. decided to break the old Reich flooring that was there since it was built in the nineteenth in 1930s Nazi Germany. So, mm. I mean, if they can do that, even though it was a huge gesture to, you know, that time period and tearing up a history and, and leaving it yeah. there because they left the flooring there. Maybe there's something here that's kind of like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I... W- one of the things that has always fascinated me about this kind of period, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, is... The idea that kind of everything that we, a lot of the things that we think of now as just part of society, all sort of are born out of this post uh, World War II Mm. world where, you know, there's, there's so much that is destroyed and people that just kind of want to either cover things up and try to move on with their life or just not talk about it. You know, that's famously the the thing with the greatest right. generation, at least in the States is that they don't talk about the war. You know, my, yeah. my grandfather was a little younger than that. He was a Korean veteran, but you know, that mm-hmm. was just, you know, like my, my grandfather was in the merchant Marines. Oh, wow. And my mom didn't even know until uh she brought some friends home that had also been there or it had been someplace in the pacific and then all of a sudden my mom tells the story it's like all of a sudden my grandfather pulls out charts that my mom has never seen before and he starts recounting all of these insane bizarre things because his father basically just kind of like just kind of like dropped him off at the Oh. With the with the sailors one day and was like, here you go. This is you now. You're doing that. <laughs> Jesus. You know, and just like as a as a boy was like sailing around the world with these hardened sailors. Yeah, as you do. And then just you don't talk about that. That was just kind of their way. Of, right. You know, either because. Either because of the horrors they had seen or because that was just not the style at the time. That was yeah. not the way of the manly way of processing things. Right, right. Because it will be in huge contrast to how we're going to see this generation react to Vietnam, which yeah. was a different experience. Um in but I, I feel like, you know, the uh the the VFW hall that you know you probably would have went to uh you know with with the the World War 2 vets and the Vietnam vets would not necessarily have uh the same perspective on things right yeah yeah but but basically the the thing that the, that's that's one of the many things that fascinates me about this era also mm-hmm. i think like 
I think I've talked before about this, but like I love the movie Jaws. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, I think you've mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that always fascinated me about that is I feel like you could drop me into the 70s mm-hmm. and I would kind of know how to navigate myself. Like okay, interesting. I, just just in the sense like okay, by the time the 60s roll around, the 60s, let's let's think of the 60s like the Cambrian explosion if we're talking about like uh bi- biological history. Like do, do you know what the Cambrian explosion is? I do not know. So the Cambrian explosion is this period in the fossil record during the Cambrian and it's kind of always had this um this idea about it that life even though multicellular complex life existed before it the cambrian explosion is where suddenly there is an explosion of diversity there are all of these types of animals and other organisms that come onto the scene that have never been seen before have never been seen since and yet, in that in that seemingly short window of geological time, we get basically all of the groups of animals that are still alive today. Whoa. Yeah, so suddenly, like, oh, guess what? You were just hanging on for, you know, a few million years with, like, you know, some, uh, you know, just, like, some blip-bloops just blip-blooping <laughs> through the water, you know? Right, Maybe right. some skitterers just... I'm just, I'm just making up words that, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> just hanging out on the sea floor, something just floating in the ocean. Oh, guess what? Now there's, uh, arthropods and oh. there's jellyfish Ooh. and now there's echinoderms and, oh, what's that? Now there's primitive fish. Like, oh, like all of this, all of, all, we find the roots of everything today in Mm. the echoes of that explosion and like even if you just looked at the music like yeah pretty much all of the genres that we think of now all came out of the 60s and 70s like for pop music like yeah kind of like with like what the exception of like really dubstep which you could even just say is just electronic music uh, like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like Acid House originally. Yeah, yeah. there's a whole history. But 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 like that. but like, there's suddenly an explosion of creativity that leads to everything that we have now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And like all of these familiar things, and yet every grown man you saw was a World War II veteran. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like that is, that is that is the yeah. weird juxtaposition that I think captivates me about this period of time that we're really really now seeing our society as we now know it hmm. uh w- whatever you want to call it cuz we're we're not modern anymore we're we're post we're postmodern I think at this point um yeah, I don't know if we changed that yet <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That that's such confusing I think, terminology. I think we're post-humanist. I don't really know. Oh, it gets. God. We'll get into we, it. Wait, it we're not. So we're not human insane. anymore. It's a whole thing, Zan. Yeah. We'll get into it. But but like, <laughs> do, do you kind of do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like this is yeah. 
This no, is a a a, a an unprecedented period of time following many other unprecedented <laughs> historical yeah. events. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's worth timelining as well rather quickly because there's so yeah. much that happens. Oh, here. yes, yes, yes. Subtracting yes. art out of it. I mean, we're talking the end of World War II, radical technological change, the atom bombs fell. You know, we have we have yes. nuclear explosions now. There's an immediate kind of, you know, the Cold War Iron Curtain goes up. We have what? In, in different dictatorships, both rising and falling in South America. We have the fight or war on communism, America imperialism, round two. Yeah. You know, this is like capitalism, consumer age is booming because of post-war industry. We have the suburbs starting to become more of a thing. Uh, I am just listing these. Uh, yeah, I mean, I live in them. It's not great. <laughs> I, I, um, I'm I, listing these off the top of my head, but there's just so much that's going on during this time. Japan has now become mm-hmm. mega influenced by you know uh, America, and we're going to get anime soon. Uh, Germany is split in half. Oh, thank God we're getting that. Well, you know, yeah, I guess. So you can kind of yeah, best brand creation. I really rebranding love the dom- ever. I love the domino effect of yeah. like, you know, World War 1, World War 2 uh tentacle hentai. Hey man, best rebranding ever made, just saying. But uh can't hide those four crimes. <laughs> Oh, but God. but yeah, there's so much happening here. And then moving in artistically, there is, you know, kind of like we talked about Duchamp's Fountain in the last exhibit, there is this shift away from the conventional art objects or what, you know, we knew as kind of what art is and how can mm-hmm. you find that in different things. And, and materiality becomes really, really an important uh, position and important yes. thing to kind of focus on and i mean you know you're starting to see it within the minimalists who are using kind of the bare bones construction material um mm-hmm. you know dan flavin's um neon tubes become you know kind of mm-hmm. one of the main things you have soul wit becoming a huge name in the art market yeah um, well you, you, know, ha- you have Judd. all of this material that yes um you know now, now that we're sort of in a in an art world that is more ready to accept the ready-made yeah um, uh ready to accept the ready made hmm. um <laughs> that sounds like the title of a paper i should write for class yeah it does <laughs> but you know this is something this is a material there's suddenly all these materials that are available to yeah. artists uh that you know weren't really thought of as art objects before mm. these artists are questioning in a, in a in a more and more consumer society which is what they're watching the evolution of uh you know they they want to talk about mm-hmm. uh these these consumer goods i mean it's kind of why you know you've got it, it's kind of why you have multiple artists just making art about canned stuff <laughs> you know yeah you, yeah but you know you have you have andy warhol uh with with his uh screen printing with i mean god it, uh, we, we yeah. could t- we could talk forever just about screen printing during this period yeah. of time yeah because reproduction man reproduction i mean and then you 
you know, also have uh, Piero Manzoni. Just his his artwork is canning, you know, and yeah. and and the idea that you could package into package art into a unit. Yes, that is such a scathing observation of the society that he was watching. Uh, yeah, you know, c- come about. But uh, I mean, I guess we should sort of start this story off if if mm-hmm. we can kind of if we can try to piece together yeah. a story of this uh, of of this uh, time in our history, because I I feel like it, it's at, at this point, you know, that this is all happening. This is all happening among the threat of nuclear annihilation and yeah. the headbutting of a uh consumer capitalist and a uh a, a consumer capitalist society and a socialist communist mm-hmm. society with different brands of authoritarianism on either side yes and not to mention coming out of that post-war mentality and then looking at the objects themselves as a reference to the tragedies that happened which i think is a big you know that is in your immediate shift into the use of those materials in you know both the u.s context with the minimalists and others and then a a post-war context in italy in particular and that's sort of the poor art of Arte Povera, which we'll, um, which we'll mm-hmm. touch on as well. I don't know exactly where we want to start because we kind of blew up the exhibit here, but I think as we, <laughs> as we move in, luckily it looks like a lot of the objects that we, we had planned to talk about today are still, you know, mostly intact. That was all kind of some yeah. of those. That's some of those well, like European paintings we don't really need to talk about. Today. <laughs> no, it's all important, but. Hi there. My name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. Well, one thing I kind of wanted to uh, start with, because yeah. I believe this happens pretty soon um, at, at this point in time that we are talking about these initial post-war years, and there is sort of the immediate recognition on behalf of the the Western powers, but, you know, particularly the United States that, you know, arose as the the top contender as like you know the the global superpower after world yeah. war Two, um you know since the other countries in europe had you know actually suffered the uh you know destruction of their infrastructure right uh, during yeah. that point um america pretty quickly realigns itself and says okay we just spent this fighting the nazis but now uh russia the ussr has overtaken all of this territory and continues to have influence and america and the soviet union kind of get into this attitude of well if if they're that thing that we are the opposite yeah now 
this first kind of uh this first kind of story i wanted to talk about uh i think is only kind of recently getting um some I, I think there was some information that we've known about this prior, but I think only as recently as last year has it been becoming more and more widely known just what role that the CIA was playing in the art world of this period, particularly with American artwork. Um, so, you know, the, after World War II in uh, 1947, uh, you know, we we form the uh, CIA and the CIA pretty quickly um, uh, recognizes that, oh, we, the USSR, you know, is pretty, uh, you know, it it maintains a lot of its, uh, you know, uh, support from Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. by propaganda. So the CIA uh, starts the propaganda assets inventory. Um, and they sort of want to do psychological warfare. This is, you know, very, very Cold War. And yeah. they want pro-American messaging. Okay. But they kind of want to do it in a more subtle way than the Soviets. Because mm. what was popular for painting at this time in Soviet Russia was, you know, socialist realism. You know, they right, wanted yeah. very... Uh, naturalistic paintings of workers, right? Um, you know, doing doing factory work, doing farm work. That was the style of painting that you know was approved by the government. Uh, as yeah, you know, at, yeah, and it's you know it it uh it reinforced an idea of identity. Um and. It, it uh you know it, it's easy to understand art yeah, that it's for, just it's, is it's for that the just people. is the image that this is art about people working because we painted people working well i mean yeah it's that and also that it's it's art for the state is i yes. think the core difference it's not art for the individual that you see in kind of that more you know um american point of view yes. which i think is what you're yes. also getting at so i don't want to necessarily take your spotlight no no here. no you're you're, but, you're absolutely right but, but it's one thing to consider yeah, with is... soviet artwork is that it's becoming this mentality of for the people for the state mm-hmm. but the state approves the work yes yes so you uh you have a uh yeah uh you can kind of promote this idea mm. of we are working together and you know the this is the type of art that we approve of because yes, it 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 celebrates collective effort. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what the CIA does is because the United States, you know, does not necessarily does not have that same idea of itself, or does not want to, um, and really can't in some ways enforce that type of control over the arts, even though, you know, we are talking about an era of, you know, like, uh, you know, where, where there, where there were strict limitations on what you could put on TV and all sorts of things. Yeah. The, the, they kind of want to go about this in a more roundabout way, how they're going to promote huh. America, pro Americanism, pro American exceptionalism. Right. Right. So the CIA was actually basically, like a silent 
benefactor of a bunch of uh, abstract expressionist uh, art exhibitions uh, in the post-war years. Um, Oh. Yeah, and they wanted to keep it much more secret. They the artists would not have even known, you wow. know, because actually, if you're thinking about it, all of these artists would have hated the yeah. CIA yeah. and definitely were not uh, capital pro capitalists in the way. Well, they were pro capitalists enough to, you know, make, make money, money off of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they, you know, like um, uh Barnett Newman was like one of these people and Newman was famously uh, inspired by uh, anarchy and communism philosophies. Oh, wow. That's kind of ironic. Yeah. So because um, huh. so so the uh, they they sort of keep this rule, a, a, what they call a long leash policy that the CIA has to stay two to three degrees uh, removed between the art uh, or, you know, exhibition, right? Sure, So you have kind of these different bodies that the CIA is kind of connected to that they're basically using to funnel money to fund these exhibitions. In uh, 1950, they start the CCF, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Hmm. which uh, it was, you know, uh, in 1966, I think, was when any connection to the CIA was uh, revealed. Right. But this all was to promote abstract expressionism because it was so different from the Soviet style. It was something that the American painters uh, really seemed to be embracing and, you know, were quite good at. Uh, and they also had another connection with Nelson Rockefeller, uh, huh. <laughs> one of the Rockefellers, the, Rockefellers, yeah. the, the incredibly uh, wealthy uh, uh, family in in the United States, and yeah. you know, f- f- uh, future vice president, yeah, Jesus, Gerald Ford, very involved in different intelligence agencies. Um, but Nelson Rockefeller also, you know, big capitalist guy big uh but was you know also really into the philanthropy and art scene you know his uh in, sat on the board of the moma wow and yeah. in 1958 uh the exhibition the new american painting very famous exhibition that toured mm-hmm. europe with uh pollock and and all of these famous abstract expressionist uh American artists, all uh, in part funded by the CIA, secretly. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it basically toured American-friendly countries, was, and in a very different way, was kind of supposed to show the freedom of America, that look how uninhibited our artists are, that, and we support this. Um, yeah and it's i feel like right now i think this the immediate impulse has been because we in our current revision i think a lot of people do not like abstract expressionist art um because a lot of it was still dominated by you know cis white men 
Right. It's to, part to some, of it. To some extent. To some extent. At yeah, least in most. the United States. It's the most, to be honest. Yeah, and, yeah. and we don't want to sound com- like complete uh, apologists for Jackson Pollock, or yeah. as I like to call them, Jackson Apollockagists. Oh, that's good. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. I just I like that. threw that at the wall and saw what splattered. Um, <laughs> well, actually, I guess he th- he splattered on the floor. Um, oh. But the... the uh, this art that I think now is sort of, at least with the very, very young generation, is not popular because it comes off as very elitist, pretentious art um, that, you know, is not super right. inclusive. This is sort of being seen as a way to further delegitimize the abstract expressionists in contemporary society, which I don't think is really Fair. I don't know if you no. would agree with that either, because these mm-hmm. were artists that, I mean, even if we, you know, want to talk about Newman, you know, the, these are important and deeply thoughtful works. Uh, yes. Mark Rothko is a, a Rothko so nice. painting. Whether or not you are that type of painter and you want to be an abstract expressionist, I highly recommend if you get the opportunity to see one. Yeah. And you have to. to confront your ideas of painting and what the experience yeah. of seeing a painting in person is. Like I, I I can only imagine the next time I'll get to see some of these in person, I hope soon. I think mm-hmm. uh the uh MFA here in Boston has uh some Oh wow. Uh but yeah, so this is, mm-hmm. you know, happening through the 50s when yeah. uh this this is really uh when when abstract expressionist painting kind of is the name of the game at least in the states. Yeah, uh, and then kind of it Yeah, but off a th- I bit. thought that would be an interesting part to sort of start this story that Yeah. that is kind of going to be the shadow that hangs over all yes. of this. The push and pull between east west north south capitalist communist what this is this is how insidious some things are how wrapped up all of these artists kind of are in a system that they're not even aware of entirely yeah you know because these mm -hmm. these are all artists that studied and thought really hard about their artwork before they put it out there and yeah. to have it kind of be tainted by this decades later after pretty much all of them are dead mm-hmm. uh, is is an incredibly bizarre uh, turn of events. And you have to wonder about how much influence, how much influence did the did our government actually have in promoting these different types of artworks that I think we would consider anti-establishment. On the surface level, anti-establishment, yes. I think, is the yes. is the way to look at that. Because I think this is exactly the kind of thing that we see now with big art investments and the big yes. showmanship of the art world without getting my own personal feelings attached to it. Because I think this is the time of the male 
artist you know the the like what yeah. do you call that the the dominant kind of i'm the artist i control the painting this is my feelings this is me you know the expression of it going on the canvas in terms yeah, of painting it, it's well, not but, but it's, this but this is this right. is american individualism Western yeah, yeah yeah individualism yeah. exactly uh, it, it's that a, stands in such opposition to what a more collectivist society would consider you know uh, an, an important figure, uh, even though, you know, there, there's sort of their own weird thing going on there. I'm still not entirely comfortable with people uh, whitewashing Stalin and Mao as they seem to be doing right yeah, now. Yeah, don't do. Uh, yeah, don't do that. Please stop doing that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, PSA, they're not good. But any, yeah, I mean, this yeah. is like this is a time where you're getting rapid change because like if if okay if we're looking at the 50s let's say this is the height of like you know those those abstract expressionist painters and this idea of that kind of male dominated form and you know this white male dominated form as we stated earlier then you're getting a bit of a shift you know yes. then things are changing because i think grounding this conversation on this exhibit and through this idea of the east and west you know communist consumerist capitalist imperialist all of these different things that are happening throughout the world and capitalism mm-hmm. in, in, in general that is kind of threatening this kind of structure and that, you know, yeah. everything that happened post-war is kind of where we get that explosion that you talked yes. about of these things going in different ways and all in dialogue with one another in one way or another and then trying to break out of it, which I think gives suddenly us... suddenly you're like, oh my God, it's an anomalocaris. Oh my God, it's hallucinogenia. Exactly. You know, this is this is the time of rapid change to the art world and so you know you're seeing because i think because i think talking about american art in the 50s into the 60s you know it's 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 kind of multifaceted too because in a way you have the really big money-making artworks that are industry everything's happening in new york la we are selling these things and they're making millions and then you have oh yes you know someone like you know chris burden and who comes along in the 70s you know coming up with like or starting really performance art but the actual act of taking you know pain and so on or you know the um the rise in general of performance artists or even Mm -hmm. just people messing with new technology when film comes around and when oh yeah you know like all of like barbara rubin and you know the stuff happening in new york and the new york underground and you know lou reed's there for some reason about all that to me is that they all knew each other that's correct barbara wild (laughs) introduced all of them to each other it's insane man but yeah these people all kind of knew each other and there's all this stuff happening but then there's also these like kind of smaller you know artists that are so impactful and so important but they kind of don't they're not in really in this dialogue of the kind of mainstream art history that we yeah. learn about until kind of later when you start to look at it a bit closer. Um, and yes. maybe a good place to start in terms of continuing a timeline might be to just quickly touch on Art de Povera, um, you know, real quick, even though it's massive. And this is essentially, mm-hmm. you know, I know you know a lot about this too, Zam, but this is a 
an artistic movement in which kind of encompasses Italian art post-war, in which you're dealing with mm-hmm. a booming industry to the north of Italy, which is dealing in automotive, it's dealing in you know tire creation and yeah. factories and so on. And then in the south, you're dealing with mass poverty because of the war and in general, because it was always kind of stuck in a feudal state till the 70s. And so- yes. You know, there's this mass migration in Italy to the north and this kind of spread of culture. Because in Italy, you know, it's you know, me being Italian, I'll speak for all of them, I guess. There's this this, <laughs> uh, this different kind of cultural facet. You know, if you're from Sicily, you have a very different understanding of Italian ways of life than if you were from Milan. But there is now this general sensation of we are Italian, we are a nation. Yes. But, you know, you're looking, they're, they were looking at, the kind of the fallout of the war, the broken buildings that, you know, are not necessarily repaired, the machinery yeah. that's now available. And, and Art de Pover mm-hmm. is literally that poor art. And so it's making mm-hmm. these sculptures, these artistic gestures, these ways of creating the feeling and the kind of poetic or the poetics in the art itself through the actual materials. And so rather than, you know, the minimalists in, in, um, in America that are really f- fixated on kind of like this is, you know, the concrete that we're bringing into the gallery. This is the neon yeah. tube. You know, this is kind of looking at the um, the material that could be found all around, turning it into something else, or sometimes, you know, just letting time be a test yeah. for it. It kind of reminds me of like, I don't know if you know the piece, but like Anselmo, uh, the famous Italian artist who he, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm blanking on the name, but he does this, he did this work where it's basically a pillar of like stone and there's sand underneath and there's kind of like um there's another piece of material holding like lettuce there oh and as yes, it, yes yes and as it erodes it eventually will kind of fall and well you know, the, the idea of that piece crucially being that mm-hmm. um because the 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 tension that the lettuce is holding on the rope yeah that's uh yes. that's that's basically holding the pieces of stone together must be replaced the whole yes. thing of art povera particularly you know in the post years where they are trying to reckon italy is trying to reckon with its complicity in fascism right and is asking itself what is who are we that and and what is worth preserving culturally yeah. and I think Artipovera makes a case that it is the living Italians who carry on everyday mm-hmm. living and perpetuate culture. That is what is important, and that is historic. Yes. That is that is history. Um, Absolutely, you know, you you see this in uh, Fabro's work, where yeah. you know the the work that comes to mind for me is uh, he he has uh, three ways of folding bedsheets which if you've uh, walked yeah. through an italian city you've seen the or town you've seen the bedsheets and the linens hanging from between the buildings and uh you're you know him bringing that into the gallery and posing it as a triptych it's like an altarpiece it's mm-hmm. you know it's referencing all of these things about uh ab- about just just living and living in the shadow of now multiple uh sort of fallen empires you know uh especially living in italy and i think this is what you know because italians will say with the exception of canales uh that (laughs) you must be italian to to make art povera and canales who was born greek 
who did not have the fortune of being Italian, uh, you know, otherwise you, you, you do not get it or, or am, am I not, is, is that, that was my understanding of it as someone who is Italian enough to pronounce, but, but, but New Jersey Italian, uh, enough to pronounce, uh, it minestrone, the soup. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, minestrone. Rather than yeah. minestrone? Yeah, I don't think it's minestrone. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of my... Gobble ghoul. No, not right. <laughs> a, a butchered pronunciation of capicola. But, or capicolo, <laughs> as I found out. But ah. um, it, it's it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of that. I don't necessarily know if you need to be ethnically italian to understand it i think you need to be raised or a part of that society spiritually italian uh yeah because i think (laughs) you don't the the thing i think italians also fall into is is like like mario of uh mario mario the plumber i think he was you know created by yeah american and japanese game and toy manufacturers right maybe just japanese but he's spiritually italian yeah, something like that. Or, you know, like Giorno Giovanna from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, mm-hmm. who's also Japanese, but, you know, <laughs> um, of somebody who really appreciates Italian culture. But, yeah, I think there's this kind of notion of, like, if you lived in Italy, if you've been there, or even if you've been in these parts of Europe, you get it. Because, that's, again, Italians, yeah. it's it, being an Italian artist is kind of difficult because you're also dealing with the Renaissance as the peak of beauty. And then the Romans, you know, yes. and then the Greeks. So it's like you are in dialogue no matter what you do. If you live in Italy and you work in Italy, you're in dialogue with that art. So and and you're in kind of yeah. competition. So, you know, it but was is, kind of is that is that a shared feeling with a lot of European countries? I uh, yes and no. Th- this it's... this would be my own ignorance, like not knowing if this is like because I know I know this exists outside of Europe. Uh-huh. But in Europe in particular, I feel like you always get the impression of like, we have all of these remnants around us of when everything was this legendary, mythical, heroic time, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that almost mm-hmm. exists outside of history itself. It's an idea, you know, it's the, you know, because the... The the British will, you know, even if they, you know, move away from, you know, being a colonial power, there's something deep down where, like, everyone, like, it's it's not quite aspirational in the way that Americans. Right. Because it, it, it's a different attitude, difficult to explain. But Europeans, they, they like, they, they seem to live with this with this idea, I don't want to call it an awareness because I, uh-huh. I, I don't think it's necessarily being aware of anything, but they, they live with a feeling of we are past our greatest days. Our greatest days are in the past and are, are, are legends. I, uh, I mean, I really think it, de- it depends on where you're at. Europe's big. Yeah. You know, like I think yeah. if you're looking at, like the British, I don't even think fit into this European attitude because they're basically America, you know, but the old version, you know, it's, it's, if, if I think the way to look at it is like if the U S 
is so new that we have not figured out our own history and we have not figured out our own identity. We are still stuck dealing with the consequences of how we were even created mm. as a nation. Mm-hmm. I think Europe is deal deals with so much history that yeah. anything you do is going to refer back to something that happened. Yeah. So, you know, you're dealing with this already politically charged area, but it's already separate because in Northern Europe, you know, let's go all the way north. So let's look at Scandinavia. That's a different history altogether, both of religions and both of culture and this change of culture. Germany in particular has a more the head Mm -hmm. of Europe right now, this like thinking head of Europe only does so because of its drastic change and, you know, horrific past and all of these different things that affect it. And there is this kind of, we're going to address the past but move forward. And now it's become this, you know, huge area for contemporary art. Italy and Southern Europe, France, you know, they are very much dealing with the history of where they come from and identity of that. And also this kind of like, we are this way, it is this way, and we will keep going. You know, because Italians will, again, this is kind of like, they love not only physically touching sculpture and work like that, but there is always going to be a callback to like the Renaissance or to the Romans Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Michelangelo. This is beauty. This is art. And that's very much embedded in the society. But then, you know, when you get art to poverty, you're getting this appreciation of everyday life, which is kind of what, you know, in Italian culture, that's like essential, right? The the idea Mm -hmm, of cooking mm -hmm. a nice meal, treating dinner as a, you know, an amazing event is something important to eat well, to enjoy your time, take your time. In in, yes. in Europe, that's different, depending, because I don't think that's the same to be said for Germany. Yes. I don't think it's the same to be said for, for um you know, Britain. And even Britain as a history is so incredibly deep and mixed yeah. of all types no, we, of, we, you know, this I, I, but... I didn't, I didn't mean to paint it <laughs> no, all. No, 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 it's all good. Broad brush, but no, no, it's I'm okay. Try, I'm trying to identify because... I'm I'm trying to identify there there is some common thread I feel oh, although yeah. it is it is these are all such different localities with different right. stories just like everywhere else in the world so you're their 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 processing of these post war years is going to be affected by them being in in the Eurosphere but also being Italian because that, that yeah. is one, a, a fairly new identity for the yes, peninsula. Yes, very new at that a time. Ver- a comparatively new identity, um, but also a, uh, but something that I mm. think they've, they've clung to. Yeah. But if I, but just to kind of, to help bring your point to a close of what you were asking, yes. I don't know if you necessarily have to be Italian to get it. Or to understand mm. it, because I think that there's something in Arta Povera throughout its course, which is incredibly diverse, right? That is very yes. human and it's yes. very poetical. You know, it, it has this feeling to it that it's kind of like, I get this, you know, with, with, um, um, is it, is it Fabro or Fabriano? I always get them confused for the bed sheets. Oh, um, uh, I think, I think it's Luciano Fabro. Yeah. That's it, yeah. So for Luciano Fabro, it's like those, you know, as you're saying, yes, of course, the hanging of the clothes, the walking through these different moments. And then there's also just the idea of getting out of bed. Yeah. You know, one can see the bed frame mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. the the canvas itself, the, the stretcher bars. It's, it's so much yeah. there that can be 
um, picked. And I think this was such an important moment in Southern Europe in particular, and really for um, for Italy as a yeah kind of as a nation to kind of just move in a different direction artistically that wasn't so caught up in either propaganda in mm-hmm. you know these kind of fascist art movements that exist uh-huh. that we i mean we, we didn't touch on it that much in our exhibit for reasons but yeah you know there's this history here of performance coming out early in theatrics but you know it's this way to kind of move forward and i think you see it happen in other areas of europe because i think you know technically until what recently europe's always going to be in a post-war because if it's not western it's eastern you know, with mm-hmm. the the Balkan Wars and different things that were happening then, which will influence lots of artists in the 90s into the 2000s yeah. and what they're working on. And I think... But it's you so know, weird even, like, how ancient that push sounds. and pull between East and Western Europe has been. Yeah. Like, I read, I read this book a couple years ago that, you know, just sort of... It was just a... It was an aside. Just, like, mm. the little ending on a chapter. It was, ta- it was talking about, you know, the history of Europe. And it just mentioned like, you know, the, basically the split of the Roman Empire into yeah. East and West, the, you know, the and which, you know, the Romans and the Byzantines. And then it's, you know, then that's the two t- uh, types of Christianity, you get Orthodox and Catholics. And like. And it just said something like in in strangely similar borders uh to basically what would become the iron curtain yeah and and like you just sit there and you're like huh this like this this tug of war has been going on for so long yeah and i mean it just sets the stages for other nations or other you know groups to kind of come in and conquer eastern europe before the or after the romans you yeah know, into viking times and all kinds well of yeah because you know the, stuff. The, the the russians were not fighting on behalf of eastern orthodox christianity new no. <laughs> but there's you you i don't think you can divorce these these you know centuries old feuds uh Mm-hmm. you know uh that managed to influence where people start falling on politics i think you can kind of see it yeah. in the united states where you know my complete my complete confusion uh of confusion disgust dismay of like either like people hanging confederate flags while living in states that fought for the union or didn't even exist at the time of the civil war looking at you jersey <laughs> looking at you montana yeah true uh, i will never i will never I get don't that understand. yeah I, that's oh jesus but Christ. but you're you can see it be these things evolve into a different type of uh political struggle mm-hmm. i um but yes, uh, got got gotta love me a good uh, a good old uh, Arc de Povera. Good, oh uh, yeah, that, that good that good spaghetti. Yeah, yeah, there is good spaghetti to be had, mm-hmm. and got and a capicola, <laughs> <laughs> capicola. Yeah. Oh geez. yes. So 
yeah, I think I think leaving Italy, we'll all wave bye to Italy from now. We're just gonna jump over ciao. to Japan. Yeah, ciao. Yeah. And then let's I think we should we could talk a little bit too about the kind of differences that are happening not in the Eurocentric world, but kind of all around. And you know, I mentioned before we have, you know, post-war Japan being influenced by, you know, America, because essentially we kind of moved in after the Mm -hmm. war. And you're also getting this kind of change to to Japanese society and you know, even the art that is happening there, contrary to kind of, I think, what we were talking about on the last exhibit. And one work in particular that we have in the exhibit here is Electric Dress by Tanaka Atsuko, uh, which was done in 1956 to 86. It's electric. It is electric. And I can't help myself. But, (laughs) and so... Before we get into it, I need to kind of preface this work because this is is she was a part of later on a, a larger collective of artists known as the Gutai Group, um, yeah. who they're they're really famous now for their installation they did in the um, Guggenheim in New York that was basically consisting of these like plastic wrappings that were kind of going through this. If you if you know the Guggenheim, it's this weird you know uh, Frank Lloyd Wright architecture cylinder thing, and in the ceiling there's these like you know plastic wraps that are stretched across and there's like color Mm -hmm. meeting in the middle and it's very Mm -hmm. reminiscent of their work of what they've been doing and essentially they were working in the 50s they're in they're formed in osaka um from in 1954 and essentially they're just like on it in terms of radical art making we're talking about conceptual Mm -hmm. artwork performance artwork you know uh happenings action painting all kinds of stuff and this is like before it's happening mainstream in the art world like in terms of internationally even one of them like shozo shinamato who was a part of the collective he was making paintings Mm -hmm. out of pasted together and layered newspapers and piercing holes into them which was Mm -hmm. similar and actually before um, you see uh, Fon- Lucio Fontana's work where he cuts the line mm-hmm. into the canvas and that becomes the known thing that he does for Art de Povera, which is this interesting kind of um, connection there, back to what we were talking about. So, yeah. you know, kind of coming out of this group, these are people that are kind of precursing Fluxus, a, a part of it, but not really, right, in this sort of yeah. ideas that are happening. Um, Tanaka Atsuko makes the electric dress and essentially what it is it's a dress as we're looking at it kind of looks like a kimono and it's made in that in this kind of Mm -hmm. way and it's made up of over 200 light bulbs that are Mm -hmm. all hand painted in different colors and was kind of made to be worn but the person who were to wear it in this case her uh, was almost like the structure or the base of it. They're not necessarily essential to the sculpture. It could also live on its own, yeah. but it can become a part of the person. And so really it's conceived as, yeah, this wearable sculpture, but it's also a response uh, to the pre- pre-conscribed figurative styles and accepted materials in art at the time, and also embracing technology mm-hmm. as a part of its creation. And so the lights... Um, the lights blink on and off every two and a half minutes to symbolize uh-huh. uh, the nervous system of the human body. And it would also kind of give a shock to the artist wearing it as well to kind of enforce that connection to it. And, you know, when wearing it and, and seeing someone kind of embody this figure, it kind of changes this idea of the sculpture, right? Because now it is a part of the body. It's consuming. It's, it's around. It is technology in harmony with, you know, oneself mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. this kind of, object that we would be so familiar with seeing 
you know, mm-hmm. or even this this more industrial object that's just the form it is. Because if we're looking at the lineage this is following, you know, minimalism and whatnot, you know, you're just if, if even like Dan Flavin's neons that I mentioned so many times, that is what it is. It's the neon brought into the gallery, displaced from the reality it sits in. I think I've mentioned mm. on the tours here before that, you know, if you put the neon tubes back in in New York City on the street nothing nothing's different but as soon as you displace them they become something else it's the same thing here except you know you're realizing the body becoming such a part of the work but Mm -hmm. then even without the body it's still reminiscent of that it's something that it's it's completely different compared to where it's coming from and you know even so that this was shown in in document 12 uh, which is curated by uh, Roger M. Bruegel and Ruth Nowak. And this was, you know, a part of the show without the person inside just kind of blinking and flashing and still, you know, a nice reminiscent moment to this that's happening. And so I thought that would be kind of an interesting, you know, work to bring into this dialogue of 20th century art because it's very much, you know, an important part of this history of not only performance, but of sculpture, of conceptual artwork, of thinking forward to this mm-hmm. harmony of technology when that's going to be broken how do we kind of connect with these things how do we deal with post-war moments but then where does art go from there and and gutai group as well is such a huge part of history that they're kind of left out a lot of the mainstream and you know even when they showed at the guggenheim people didn't know who they were and they kind of were confused <laughs> by the work itself but then when one knows the history and you realize where they're coming from that was actually like their final work they were working to, oh. to like in a sense of that was where the collective was always headed because a lot of their work was so radical and, and just kind of like moving, right? Very action-based, very body, very much like, you know, painting to pain and, and um, expression in that way and very, very, you know, physical, material-wise. And, you know, even Atsuko's work is a bit different because it's not necessarily as heavy in the materiality of the paint, of the, you know, mm-hmm. the gesture of the conceptual work. And it, it's very much this kind of harmony and this and bringing technology back and surrounding one in it and seeing the connections, which is also one mm-hmm. thing to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. Um, I, I, and it's, it, the, the interesting cultural exchange, too, that you have going on in that part of the world where you've suddenly had Western military presence, I think, and, yeah. and you have a, a another exchange. The last time we were talking about, you know, the the fascination the West had with the East. Yeah, exactly. And you know, in a in a weird way, like what's sort of the the lesson I feel like that we were beginning to learn. I think more, maybe more in contemporary times, but maybe the things that they're just starting to see here is that. The, the places in the world that we think of as making traditional art that is, you know, untouched and, you know, is concerned with only ancient traditions and does not interact with uh, modern advancements and modern concerns is, I feel like we've at this point got, gotten rid of that idea or at least exposed that idea as, yeah. as sort of false. I'm... The thing that I that I'm kind of thinking about because we, we touched on it a little bit before, maybe a little bit more of as uh, as a joke, but you know, anime in large part is due to American soldiers leaving behind comic books in Japan. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. that art that art style, I think particularly even of like, you know, especially Disney cartoons as well, having that influence on it. I mean, to to this 
today are, are you familiar with the, the the superhero comic the phantom mm, i feel like i've heard of it but yeah, billy zane played him in a movie once uh oh, okay. i don't think it was very big and also yeah. his costume's kind of silly looking yeah <laughs> but interestingly enough uh the phantom is actually a beloved kind of figure in some parts of papua new guinea really yes and he is still painted on uh traditional war shields wow okay that's interesting because of the comic books that were left behind by uh uh, americans uh you know in and around australia huh and it i think shows you that these these are not outside of europe which is unfortunately how i think a lot of people think of it is all of these cultures are not just stagnant waiting on something else to come and happen to them that right everyone all over the earth is constantly intaking and making new things with what they encounter and i think that that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind as we mm-hmm. try to as we're slowly but surely i think and rightfully so expanding the art canon outside of europe and america at this point in history yeah. uh it's you know and we spent an exhibit you know particularly just talking about yoko ono and her involvement in in fluxus yeah uh and I, I think I think it's important to sort of recognize that all of these things are happening at once. And as we sort of yes. get further into the 20th century, this is where we sort of encounter the idea of the death of painting, because all of these yeah. this interest in the art object really does not um, really does not match up with what these artists are concluding from their work. And even the abstract expressionists are, are are also going to kind of play into this uh, re recontextualizing of painting, and because painting is so, for better or for worse, can be kind of direct, and yeah. we're entering a period of time at this point in in the mid twentieth century where there's a recognition of multiple narratives that mm-hmm. multiple things are going on all at once, you know, even if there are these sort of global struggles of economic systems, there are people living their lives and trying to incorporate tradition with modernity, yes. Yeah, yeah, I would, I, I agree, and and I think too that painting is then falling into its own kind of lineage and its own kind of dare I say narrative of where it's headed, and this, and, and in yeah. part because of you know the birth of you know minimalism, art de povera, and then you know conceptual art, which we haven't touched on just yet, and and fluxus mm-hmm. as well, and all these different mo- movements and these ways of working. I think painting gets left behind in a way because it couldn't. I mean, it does catch up. Just it, I think it addresses yeah. what it is, and yeah. that's where I think you know later in twenty first century yeah. as well, painting goes in a totally different direction. But it, it because you can't, you know, the, the lineage of painting if if one is paint one is a painter is a very different mm-hmm. one than you would come out of if um, you know, you are a video artist or if you are somebody in sculpture yeah. or if you're somebody in you know uh, 
yeah. I, I don't even know. But, you know, like these all have, all these mediums have their kind of histories and lineages. Yeah. And even in contemporary artwork, you know, you see that and you have to kind of know where you're pulling from in order to make yeah. work, of, of course. But at this time, it's kind of this, again, that explosion, such a great way mm -hmm. to, it's such a great metaphor now, <laughs> you know, do you, where... Do, do you forgive me for blowing everything up? You know what? You're really selling me on the point yeah. now that it keeps coming up. But it's it's very much <laughs> that. And I mean, you can even look back to Duchamp's Fountain and you're seeing yeah. that as the kind of challenge. So then, yeah. because this is all happening and, at the same yeah. time, it's just very much kind of open season for what can be considered art and then where that can go and then where is it going yeah. to be refined and i think with painting it's it just goes into its own direction and then in the mainstream considered dead soon i don't know if mm -hmm. we're there yet did we when is i think death of paintings like the 70s right or is it the 50s I, 60s I, I think so because it starts it's, to die out like after it's just yeah yeah because abstract expressionist i think is the last time like that the top yeah. artists in the world are right are painters unless you're gerhard richter but we'll get there yes Ger <laughs> yes he didn't stop <laughs> <laughs> um you know and pollock dies pretty young in the 50s and yeah well, that's just the thing, isn't it? Because if when we're talking about this period of time and we talk about the most famous works of art from this mid-century period, it's not sculpture and paintings in the way that I think we think of as decade or century defining uh, paintings in previous time. You know, it's not right. a monumental statue. It is not a manuscript or a painting the art that the art that we identify with this time period is it's a lot of graphic design and music and re, it's reproducible things right you know you start to see this with you know i think eventually sort of the downfall of the hippie culture was weirdly an association with with an affinity of those reproducible things and so much value being placed on reproducible things which i think initially the hippies wanted to reject because they were you know anti-materialistic but i can't get away from this idea of these couple of decades where every, all design all design yeah. was so stunning yeah. Like actually, um I, I you'll you'll be so glad that these survived the explosion right over here. Um you if you see oh, all of these great. uh vintage porn posters that I sent. Oh uh, yeah, okay. I see appetites come one come all, backseat <laughs> cabbie. Oh Jesus. For her birthday, I actually got Allison a book of uh like a coffee table book of vintage porn posters oh fun yeah yeah she's been kind of into them lately okay fun yeah That's cool you know i i'm a supportive <laughs> boyfriend yeah yeah um, good on you zan yeah but i am also like fascinated looking at them because they are so well mm -hmm. designed yeah I, i'm going to beat that word to death <laughs> but you just are like God, every shitty concert poster, every t-shirt, everything, 
everything had this kind of artistic touch to it that oh, I yeah. think is why we kind of can't stop romanticizing this period to some extent, even for yeah. all of the terrible things that happened to it. We can't stop yeah. romanticizing it. Um, and there's that proximity that like everyone that we know that's still alive that remembers this period wants to talk about their proximity to some event that yeah. shaped the world, even if they just were watching it on TV. You know, my mom talks about watching the moon landing on TV and hearing about, you know, which 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 public figure got assassinated and all those things like. There's there's such a different aesthetic to this period that I'm just I'm just looking at the at the at these, you know, these probably gross movies yeah. <laughs> that I really don't have any interest in seeing. But I'm like, God, that's a cool poster, you know, yeah, man. I just like I mean, I I can't get away from that. Capital A aesthetic. Yeah. Capital I mean, A aesthetic. Is... Like I, I was recently reading a Vice article about a um a uh a, a a woman who, you know, she got her degree in like, you know, communication design or whatever. Uh and now she designs porn banners on okay. like Pornhub and stuff. Huh. And her whole thing is like now you're supposed to make it look cheap and crappy and amateur. She Jesus. She said the key word is amateur. Right. But like that is that's so different to this compared to this time period. I don't know. I feel like it's also just because that has been you know drenched in nostalgia yeah. and that we kind of have that over it i don't know there's something in there that needs to be dissected a bit in terms of why these things are so romanticized because i get it like i i am obsessed with that kind of i mean i guess i was i'm not as much anymore but like that kind of interest mm -hmm. in the design in the posters in these old like and even just like old movie posters i'm not as yeah. familiar with the ones you're discussing but you know just this <laughs> like <laughs> But, but well, like I, I mean, of, I understand. For, for I've a seen lot, it. For a but... lot of those like B movies, the best part was the poster. Yeah, because the illustration is just gorgeous. I mean, this the is also like hand painted. Yeah. You know, this is you know the age of hand painted movie posters, and they're so, kind of awesome. But isn't that know? interesting that that's the that is the most? If we're talking about objective art, objective meaning you can tell immediately looking at it what it is of. That is the iconic art yeah. of this time period be Dang it from yeah. the united states japan soviet union china uh south america like that is the visual art that we remember from this time period the artists the capital a artists at this time are you know doing very interesting things but they're not interested in making pretty paintings no, no. so i feel like I, I don't know if there's if there's a connection there, if it was just that there was so much there were so many artists and there was so much design, it just saturated and permeated every aspect of this consumer culture. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, um, I actually think you're onto something in that one because I think, yeah. you know, one thing that maybe cons- we can consider because I'm not too sure either, but like this could also be that that point in which because so much happened so yeah. drastically and the art world essentially exploded into something, oh, we're really going to beat this word to death, but you know, essentially yeah. something that encompassed a lot of different things because let's see we have birth of the movie industry becoming this is golden age of hollywood for the united states then in the 60s we're getting overseas films and you know good and the bad and the ugly comes out in italy yeah you have all these different mediums becoming major motion picture major businesses corporations etc and then artists are looking at that and incorporating it into their work Mm -hmm. you have moving image works becoming kind of a thing in the late 60s as a mainstream and then even in the 50s and and 60s as kind of an underground you have andy warhol and the reproduction and the Mm -hmm. kind of using of what's around them you know i think there's so much you know but Mm -hmm. i mean graffiti art oh yeah Yeah. and it's it's all it's all happening art is exactly to every aspect of society and it's uh it's i don't know it still stands in i don't want to just like forest gumpify you know <laughs> all of this and just like talk about yeah. how great it was for the baby boomers or whatever but uh, you you kind of can't get away from this this period of time and like and 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 that feeling of it i know i but like okay like oh kind of a slightly different example I people talk about how at this time Japan kind of becomes an industrial uh, powerhouse as far as, you know, making pretty cutting edge technology. Yeah. And yeah. And one of the one of the uh, anecdotes that I hear to explain this is that, well, because the United States put all these sanctions on Japan post-World War II saying, oh, you can't do this and this and this, and, you know, we're going to be the ones with the space program. That basically the people that, if Japan had had an uninhibited uh, industrial engineering science sector, those people would have gone into, you know, aeronautics or something. You know, right. And instead, you know, they start making incredible consumer electronics, Uh, you know, instead of instead of, you know, I don't know, spaceships or, you know, and, and, and it sort of unfortunately plays into a stereotype of like, you know, the, the Japanese being like robots themselves. Um, But you oh, see this also with Germany. Germany starts producing uh incredibly uh desirable uh and powerful automobile engines because they were making uh you know they Weapons they had to war. switch over from making airplanes and tanks and they weren't allowed to make airplanes anymore like that's the yeah. story behind that's the story behind BMW like oh interesting yeah like that the logo is a propeller they they huh. were they were making airplanes and then were told, Hey, you no, no more, no more, you know, uh, no, no more making uh war machines right now. You, you've had two world wars. You need to sit this out. And then they turn around and make, uh, 
the ultimate driving machine. BMW, BMW sponsor. sponsor yes, oh, uh, that's yeah. exactly what I was. Gonna but say. yeah, that's that's like uh, there's a there's a story in Keith Richards' autobiography, uh, just called Life. Oh, it, it, it that is a doozy of a book. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. I I remember this one part in it where he talks about he's driving a Mercedes like on a windy country road, hmm. and then just goes off the side of a mountain basically and rolls down Jesus, and he survives because he has like a 1946 mercedes that oh, wow. basically they were using whatever metal they had and basically his he basically was driving a mercedes made out of repurposed tank steel my god yeah and that's why he survived jesus yeah they don't make them I like mean, they used to man <laughs> they really don't. You, you mean Keith Richards? <laughs> That's good. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 This is Supernatural on the Rocks, a new Supernatural podcast hosted by two of the voices behind Glee on the Rocks. I am Emily, a longtime viewer of Supernatural who could never let it go. And I'm Mandy, a fan of the start who did let it go, but it just wouldn't stay gone. Every episode, we cover a season of Supernatural. Digging into the mythology, the characters, and the fandom it left behind. With extra episodes when we need to talk just a little bit more. Because there's always more to talk about, isn't there? So join us to remember the road that was. At Supernatural on the Rocks. But yeah, no, it is kind of wild to think about where these once, um, you know, these once nations of, I guess, like, Axis powers, literally, became kind of the new advanced technological areas because they literally yeah. couldn't invest their money into anything else that was kind of all they could do to to make a product and then i mean i'm, yeah. I'm generalizing that's not obviously all they did but like mm-hmm. this is the main kind of thing that's happening the main industry i mean even just looking at japan cities like tokyo the infrastructure that goes into place which i mean there's a oh, whole yeah. history behind that even before the war but I, but yeah. i think it's also interesting to see how each nation reckons with their history and what they do i think germany is still dealing with it and they never will not deal with it but you know art wise it's totally relevant and in in all honesty one of the centers of contemporary art now and this starts at that time because even with documenta being created in castle in 1955 And that's every five years for those who don't know. And that's still going on. I mean, it's a little postponed mm-hmm. right now, but this is kind of like the Venice Biennale for, um, you know, for Italy. But it, for Castle, this is bigger. This is international. This is an event mm-hmm. that every five years, it's kind of precursed information and has since grown to have other voices and other people coming in. And it's, it will do, I think we'll have to touch on it more at some point. But, you know, that is one way that this, this, this country has kind of started to address itself and it begins there and then you have somewhere you know you have japan doing kind of its own thing and again like you know when i say that they made the best rebrand in all of history i'm not kidding they really did because (laughs) you know this is also they still not to diss on japan but it's also a place that hasn't addressed its war crimes it's kind of a more forgive and forget type deal um 
So, uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know if the Chinese forgot. <laughs> they definitely did, and neither did Korea. And actually, even one point to make out as well, part of the influence of anime comes from Korean cartoons because they're an, mm-hmm. o- an older art form that existed and was kind of co-opted mm-hmm. by Japan during invasions. So, you know, all of these things are happening. All of these things are being, you know, considered and taken in in this kind of century, you know, of the in this kind of decade of Mm-hmm. the 50s into the 60s and i mean we haven't even touched music i don't even know if we can because of just how insane things get and how changed yeah we're, we will literally be here for forever for yeah days. We'll, yeah uh, just talking about the music of this time period it's an incredible amount of restraint i mean like like half my favorite albums come out <laughs> during this yeah this period of time and probably a lot of other people's favorite albums um, uh yeah but yeah, so I think I think with the nations, you know, you're getting this kind of cross pollination that comes with that, and this kind of you know stuff that is happening, and and kind of I think just to segue into that a little bit, I know we kind of we haven't really touched on uh, the conceptual artworks mm-hmm. that are happening at the time, and this kind of different ways of utilizing space, and without getting into a huge deep dive into conceptual art and what that is i mean it's essentially just to kind of for those who don't know conceptual artwork is is literally an idea the artwork mm-hmm. is then an idea it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical the object. idea is the idea is more important than the object exactly yeah it surpasses it in many cases and becomes the art itself and one work in particular that i find very interesting in this relationship between politics ideas action and space, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and in, in, in particular gallery spaces, as we were kind of mentioning, is the work by um, Argentina artist Graciela Carnavale, um, mm-hmm. titled Acciona del Enciero, or Confinement Action, which essentially mm-hmm. was, was a, a work that took place around the uh, late 1960s, specifically 1968, in Rosario, Argentina. And this was like a time period that there's during this time in this in the city, there is a lot of um, works happening by younger artists, collectives and others that are kind of all putting these on at the same kind of time. And her her work gets installed. And what it essentially is, is people are invited to come to this gallery opening for this show, for this work that's going to be displayed here, this performance. And what it is, is it's basically just a simple gallery, you know picture oh, white okay. walls, like, like white this rooms. one right here yeah, yeah yeah let's actually go in this is kind of the work we have here so it's a simple gallery oh, okay. um the wa- the windows are you know you can't really see through the windows but we can kind of see through the door yeah here. no so i gonna... can't i it's, it's just a room yeah what, what's in here yeah well we got to go inside so everybody kind of come inside i'll go last and i'm just gonna shut the doors here um and there we go so as you walk around you'll notice that the gallery itself is actually blank and there's mm-hmm. not much here. And the reason being is because uh, we're all locked in here now, and you have just become the art. Huh. Well. How's that, how's, how's that, how's that uh, working for your anxiety there? Not great. Uh, I'm feeling like everybody's really claustrophobic. I am uh, don't like being confined, so I'm even nervous, yes. even though I put up to this. But we it's can't like actually... It, it, it's a it's a mid-century it's... modern escape oh, room. Oh, God. That, you know what? That's a good way to put it. It is like an escape room. But I'm going to hand everybody these these flyers here that would have been a part of the piece. Um, here you go. You take one. There you go. You could take one, too. And 
essentially what happened during this time is that people got locked in just like we are here and mm-hmm. freaked out <laughs> because they got locked in again. <laughs> I mean, it's even smaller than when we're in now, you know, and yeah, panic ensues. You have like claustrophobia, people kind of being, you know, mad. And the only yeah. reason it ends, this goes on for an hour. And the only reason it ends is because a passerby noticed that people were trapped, peeled off the paper that's on the windows now and was like, oh, mm-hmm. God. These people are stuck and then broke the glass so people could get out. Just like, oh, there we go. Our assistant is going to break oh the glass gosh. here, just like it happened, to let us out. Ah, nice. Jesus. You know, we can... Yeah, it's a bit brutal. And then shortly before the police arrive, because, you know, it's like, this is a crime, technically, um, <laughs> they handed out these these pamphlets like I did to you. And what's what it basically said on them was a reference to what was... what. Um, from, or what people would go through who were being imprisoned by the Argentinian dictatorship mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the time and what they were going through in the prisons and, and how they would be taken and what would happen. And and, and yeah. at this point, people were being taken off the streets for little to nothing, you know, mm-hmm. taken away from their families, mm-hmm. never to be seen again. I mean, it's a really horrific time that's happening. Yeah. And, and it's a time backed by, oh, actually, I don't know how where the imperialism from America fits in, but I know that this is, you know, there's a lot going on in South America and specifically Argentina Argentina under this this um dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And so once that happened, the context was given, people realized, oh, this mm-hmm. was the artwork, was mm-hmm. the experience, and then the experience that was contained in the gallery space. You know, mm. that fear, that claustrophobia that anxiety all came out in that space and it existed in that space and it was what the artist intended it wasn't it's necessarily like the stanford prison experiment but make it art kind of yeah kind of i guess i mean i it's it's more or less like it, it's the artist choosing you know the medium that best describes what they wanted to talk about which yeah. was clearly this you know tragedy occurring at the time that everybody there would have been familiar with but how do you represent that in a painting how do you represent it in a photograph right how do you represent it even in a movie you really can't but yeah. this captures that feeling and that's but I yeah think, cla- the claustrophobia is such a uh is, is such a visceral feeling yeah and um yeah, and I mean, and, this and, is... and and also, I think the unexpectedness of yeah. it as well is the yes. crucial component here because, you know, in a, I I think everyone in this period of time is becoming very aware of, you know, just the people associated with certain political things just disappear sometimes. Yeah, and or you know. If they aren't found dead, they're just never seen again. Exactly. And that was also, unfortunately, part of the story of this time. I mean, this is, you know, if we're talking about the uh, 70s as well, you know, this is, uh, you know, Europe loosening its, you know, its its control on Africa. And, you know, this is the United States and Europe trying to figure out exactly how much influence they have on these uh, countries in South America. Like this is, this is a very fraught time for a lot of reasons Mm -hmm. because even the, uh, the democratic republics that the world kind of looks to, to be the, you know, the functioning governments have an active role in, the uh in in the 
in the dissolution of liberties of people in other countries that, you know, maybe have their own homegrown dictators and right wing militias that, you know, uh, that were there and probably had their own reasons for feeling the way they did. Mm -hmm. But it's all unfortunately connected as we as as we sort of, you know, right look at history more closely you know i mean even if we go you know elsewhere in south america you see this in brazil and uh you know we can look at uh sildo mirelis's work insertions into ideological circuits uh it was a project he did in uh 1970 and these were coca-cola bottles that um, you know the idea was you know, that you recycle the glass. This is, you know, back when all Coke bottles would have been glass. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, and I, I remember, but I think both of us were very fascinated about these when we first learned about them. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, he would take these bottles that were in circulation, print instructions uh, or messages on them, like things that say like Yankees go home or instructions on how to make a Molotov cocktail and then give them back to the recycling plants. And because they were printed with white ink, you would not see the instructions necessarily when the bottle was empty. But mm-hmm. when it was filled back up with Coke and, you know, basically sold again, you suddenly had yeah. these instructions for or messages about, uh, you know, taking taking down your oppressors. Yeah, how to make and a it, Molotov cocktail. Yeah, but you're seeing you're seeing artists recognize the big machines that are surrounding them and using those machines mm-hmm. uh, as an instrument of their own undoing. That it it's it's so it's so interesting and it's it's really cool to just sort of hijack a system mm-hmm. like that. Well, yeah, and I mean, even with that work with the with the Coca Cola project in, in this in this version of the uh, the ideations project, it's totally about the circulation. I mean, all of these are for him. It's, yeah, it's, it's using circulation of products of consumer products as a way to make the art, and even in particular that you know it doesn't exist if it's not in circulation. Like we have some bottles here as we walk over to see them, just to show to give you know evidence. And even the Tate has these. Other places have these bottles, but do, they're. Do you want to? Te- do you want to drink one? Mm, no, because mm. it's. I mean, it, I guess it is Coke that was bottled in the, in the late sixties. Yeah, I mean, let's just leave the ethics of taking artwork, I guess, but. <laughs> no no I, I i i'm also i'm also not a soda drinker. not a yeah that's what i was i'm not a soda drinker either um uh, but we can oh, look at them they're very pretty but uh yeah. <laughs> but I mean, again you gotta love old coke bottles got i do i used to have so many old coke bottles man <laughs> i was obsessed talk about if you, you know you're you're collecting 1950s porn posters i'm collecting 1950s coca-cola bottles we are not the same no <laughs> but but you know even even these these bottles here like they are not actually the work they're like a documentation of the work because the the work in order to exist has to exist the work's the idea it's the action that's the whole thing with it's why performance art you know takes off at this time too it's all about the action it's it weirdly again i think connects back to the same Mm -hmm. ideas that the italian artists are wrestling with in art de povera where they are 
looking at the action of living and persisting exactly is is a is a is a human creative endeavor exactly and even even the intention of using in this case the familiar object the coca-cola bottle as a symbol of u.s imperialism and capitalism affecting the nation and the country but also because it you know of of a reference to the dictatorship again that's happening there you know that's that's brutalizing the country and 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 kind of using the system to pass the message uh for resistance and i actually i have a quote i I brought with me because i knew we were going to talk about this and i if you wouldn't mind i wanted to just read that even to give some kind of Mm -hmm. context and this was i think taken from the artist himself um that the insertions into ideological circuits arose out of the need to create a system for the circulation and exchange of information that did not depend on any kind of centralized control this would be a form of language a system essentially opposed to the media of press radio and television typical examples of media that actually reach an enormous audience but in the circum the circulation Systems of which there is always a degree of control and channeling of the information inserted, the way I conceived it, the insertions would only exist to the extent that they ceased of the, to be the work of one, just one person. The work only exists to the extent that other people participate in it. What also arises is the need for anon- anonymity. By extension, the question of anonymity involves the question of ownership. What the object of art becomes a practice, it becomes something over which you can have no control or ownership. I think that kind of gives a little bit of context, even though it's a kind yeah. of shroud of mystery as uh, well. It's like, what, are the, what is this? The lyrics to a David Byrne song? <laughs> I'm not even, I can't even max. You're not wrong. It's the thing. It's, <laughs> but, it, but it is kind of an interesting thought. I mean, as someone who's worked, you know, with removing their name from a, from a project, you know, yeah. it is interesting to think about that, that the work only exists if it's a part of the system. And then it's like the artist, you know, you know, at this time, too, in the 1970s, it's like, you know, in the early 1970s, like literally 1970, they are it's, you know, it's not his work necessarily anymore. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was his idea. It's, it lives yeah. through that. It is his artwork, but it be, exists to the, the population and not even in a way where he's like giving it as, I, this is my gift. It is, yeah. no, this is, we are going to do this together. And through mm-hmm. the system that is oppressing, you know, use it and turn it on its yes. head, just kind of like you were saying. And it's such a fascinating concept, such an evolution too from early conceptual mm-hmm. artworks and coming from a place that was thinking about it very differently. You know, mm-hmm. being in Brazil and not necessarily, you know, New York in in the United States. Yeah. I mean, you know, p- playing off of the familiar, you know, it also reminds me, this is, I think, taking us sort of to the end of the time frame that we wanted to talk about. But this is, you know, I think also going to lead into where we end up going. Yeah. Because um, there, there are going to be other things that dominate the... Uh, last decades of the 20th century yes but um i wanted to show uh, actually a photograph because oh, one thing that yeah. we also didn't really talk about a lot is that <laughs> photographers are also yeah you know again reproducible art yeah you know we're, we're it's not painting necessarily but you know the a lot of the artists big artists of this time period are photographers uh, yes i mean one of my favorite photographers gary winogrand is yeah. you know, active in this period 
Gosh, uh, we forgot to talk about Walker Evans too, but I guess oh that's God, more U.S. Yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's maybe some stuff we'll talk about in the future with uh, street mm. photography in particular. Yeah, but I wanted to talk about the artist um, uh, Graciela Iturbide. Uh, she's Ooh. born in 1942, and she's a Mexican photographer. Oh wow! Um, and one of her most famous works, uh, if you'll come through. Uh, right over here is Nuestra Señora de las Iguanas, Our Lady mm. of the Iguanas. Um, and it is a huh. incredibly striking yeah. photograph. And I think I I think this is a photo that so well captures a place and time but also the the other thing that we didn't even get to sort of talk about in this time is also a a recognition of uh the human relationship with the natural because of you know now living in a a, a fully uh industrialized world right and you know this you know the a, a lot of her work references you know uh mexican culture um but also catholicism um mm. which you know at, at this point is is heavily ingrained into mexican culture even if you know she's uh exploring a lot of uh areas uh with uh indigenous women um or indigenous people, but particularly interested in uh, indigenous women. Um, and uh, the, the iguanas, you know, that there's a comparison to Medusa. There's, you know, the, the, obviously the, the pose is very reminiscent of maybe a saint with a halo or uh, with a crown, right. maybe a Madonna. There's so many things you can read into this culturally but there's a new gaze added here and that's hmm. that of the iguanas you know these are iguanas that are going to be eaten um but yeah i believe this woman was uh the story was she was selling these iguanas um it's a it's a delicacy in the region and there's the multiple gazes i think is a growing recognition of the environmental movement that's also beginning to happen at this time you know yeah a uh a feeling of as we you know have the space race going on there's also suddenly a concern that oh wait what is our relationship to our home planet you know right this uh it's it is a it is a beautiful and haunting photo just I mean, not uh, not not in the way that it's like, you know, I, I, I understand, you know, they're they're just eating an animal that humans have been eating in the region for probably thousands of years. Uh huh. Yeah. But I feel like there's an there's an introduction of a whole other element here. There is an indigenous presence and an animal presence that is beyond 
you know, just just documenting something that happened because this is a posed photograph. And I think people recognized that at the time, but it's cinematic. It's yeah. uh, it is something. It is something new to the art canon, I think, at, at that time uh, mm. that is. Try, trying to figure out uh, the place of spirituality in a mechanized world, the place of nature in a mechanized world, and what will become of our cultures as we proceed mm. forward uh, in, in, in this uh, you know strange time in history. Yeah. Um... Wow, what a nice precursor into the uh-huh. 70s and 80s, I have to say, and where we're going to be moving um, uh-huh. into this. But I think, you know, all in all, it also captures this idea of all of the art movements that we've been discussing and this connection, you know, to history um, and to the past. And that I think, you know, is going to be, I think, forgotten a little bit or maybe it wasn't even being recognized even at the time because of this constant movement, but is going to, you know, come back very soon and maybe even a little past the A's into recognizing some of the things that were overlooked in the mm-hmm. canon and overlooked in what was being in, in kind of discussed. And even in a way, this is kind of ahead of the curve on that in looking mm-hmm. back to in looking forward and then also looking back, which I think is kind of interesting um, mm-hmm. In terms of the environment, in terms of, you know, pretty soon you're getting anthropocentric viewpoints and then capitalist-centric viewpoints and mm-hmm. humanism, mm-hmm. post-human, well, not humanism, post-humanism <laughs> and, you know, post-modernism. And I think all of this is a, is my little aperitif to you, to you all here of what I think is to come uh, soon. And I cannot wait to talk about post-modernism because, no oh boy, it's going to be interesting. Oh, um, yes. as a way and i think the return of painting and spoiler alert a lot of it's not very good yeah unfortunately yeah. well it, it we'll, gets better it gets it better, does get but... better it does get better but you gotta wait a little bit uh for that and then maybe we'll have to talk about some photography because i feel like we've been a little you know it's it's I, it didn't hit me until you just said that and we were looking at the photograph and i'm like oh man this reminds me of dn arbus for some reason it, it's not related it yeah. just does well it's... but but you know the the photograph and the and movies being readily available. Yeah, remember it's this part is of that, the yeah. first. This is the first century that ever existed. Oh yeah, that had photography at both ends. That's true. Yeah, and it it is how people sort of came to interact with, uh, not only the news but with 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 cultural events in general. Yeah. No, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, we're very excited to keep going with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, join us next week, and we will be on to our third and final installment of Art in the 20th Century. This is uh, this has been a blast to, yeah. uh, to do and to talk about. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll see where it goes next. Um, absolutely. Mhm mhm. Um what do we got going on? Joe, you have uh you have anything you want to plug? 
Uh, just my work, The Midnight Drive, on RadioPepeste.org. Feel free to go check it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, my band, Mothman, is going to be playing at the Florida State Fair uh, in, on uh, April 23rd in uh, Florida, if you uh, uh, dare to come. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully it's going to be fun and it's going to be safe and we'll get to play some good tunes. I'm yes. I haven't decided like how like country maybe we should go or how like Florida, like Florida. Right. We should Jimmy go. Buffett, Jimmy Buffett, or, Tom Petty. Uh, oh, true. Yeah. Um, um, I believe Don Felder of the Eagles is also from Florida. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think he actually taught Tom Petty how to play guitar. What? Yeah. Like, Weird. Again, it gets into this whole thing. All these people know each other. It's insane. Yeah, that's. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. My art is uh, on display at uh, Distigial Gallery yes. in Ruskin, Florida, which Go is buy cool something. and fun. Yeah, yeah. Get uh, it's never good. too early to start uh, holiday shopping. <laughs> Very true. If someone wants a painting of a uh, cassowary or a Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. There you go. Good stuff there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, if you'd like to interact with the museum after hours, we are at Uncanny Museum on mm-hmm. Twitter. We are at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. Yes. Uh, if you're looking for some other uh, good content to listen to, we have our friends over at Supernatural on the Rocks. Uh, great podcast. We're excited to be working with them soon. Uh, also, our friends over at Force Football Facts. Yes. Um, to, for for all your your football uh, news. Yeah. I, I I always love listening, and every time they discover a new species of football, it's really <laughs> exciting. Well, what an adventure! Uh, I guess we gotta piece it all back together. Yeah, uh, we'll get on that during the week. And yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, It'll be brand new here for our next and final installment of Art in the 20th Century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I have been Joe Semino. Bye. Bye.